I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Lapp, the executive director at Cordea. He is also an experienced trainer, educator, writer, and therapist. Cordea has been serving the Philadelphia area by providing a thorough treatment program for abusers and harmful partners who are mainly men, but can also be women. Cordea offers training, consultation, group therapy, trauma-focused therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and independent general therapy. This organization sprang forth from the idea of getting to the root of relationship abuse. It's all about treating the person who is doing the hurting with respect and warmth. And Cordea's tagline is, helping people become safe partners. Hi, Tony. Thank you for joining us on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me here, Bill. It's a real pleasure. It, it really is. And this is just such an opportunity. I, um, I've been looking for somebody like you for seriously months and months. And I finally found you. So this is fabulous. And, you know, you've been with this organization for about 23 years. The program itself has been around for almost 40 years. You told me, because we had a conversation a week or so ago, you told me that the longer you've been doing this, the younger the work feels and that the work your team does is evolving and will look very different in time. So could you walk us through what you meant by that? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, in part, what I meant by that is even in the time that I've been here, uh, when I first uh-huh. came in, trauma was just beginning to be something that people were talking about, emotional trauma and the effects of trauma. But it wasn't something that uh, was really deeply integrated into the work that we we're doing. More recently, there's uh, been uh, increasing conversation around the prevalence of traumatic brain injury. Not saying that that's a central core thing, but just to say that there's a subset of people that we would work with for whom actual organic injury to their brain may play a role in the work in what's going on with them. And so it's important to figure out and identify them, but we're really early in knowing what to do in the cases where we identify them. There's been plenty of places where it's been really evident over the years that we're still figuring things out and that the likelihood is is that 20 years from now, this could look very different um, as we're trying to figure out ways to be more impactful. That's very interesting. When you talk about people with traumatic brain injuries, you're saying, right? My thoughts go to playing football or just getting their head banged in some fashion. I mean, that's what you're referring to, right? Listen, when we started, this was not something that we asked a lot of questions about. It might come up, but it wasn't something that we went after intentionally. I sat through a a training once from a guy on the West Coast who worked in a building where there was a program similar to ours. And then on the other side of the building, they had a a brain injury clinic and uh, he was interested. So they did a partnership and they did a bunch of testing of the people that were in the program and they did find quite a bit of incidents. So we ask a lot of questions nowadays about whether people played impact sports, whether they have a history of getting into accidents or that created head injuries. It's not always that we have clarity And there's still such a scarcity of good testing, much less established treatments. I can think of a few cases where it's been, there's been no question. 
and that it has very much impacted the work that we've done. And then other cases where we've suspected it. And so it's tweaked a little bit while we've tried to do it. And it's great that those people crossed the hallways and had those conversations about that. I had a conversation with some guys that are researchers here at Penn about this, just even, I think it was like right before the pandemic. And they essentially said, what they communicated to me was, listen, the state of the field in TBI work is we're still working on developing good testing, testing that can distinguish between different kinds of injuries and what have you. And they said, we're really not that far along in terms of treatment. So mm -hmm. as, as we learn more about the brain, we're going to be learning a lot that we haven't figured out yet. And it's something that I was going to bring up later. And conversations, I believe with you and, and some people like you who do what you do, they make it sound like you're not born an abuser. You know, you don't, you don't, you're not born an abuser. It's oftentimes something that you see in your family and then you emulate or your social life. And in this case, if you have a traumatic brain injury, I think what you're saying or what they're saying is that that some of the, I'll call them layman's terms here, uh, filters that you may have had working properly before are not working. I mean, you might go from a one and two on a scale of 10 of anger to hit a nine or a 10 and then, then exhibit violence at that point. Am I anywhere close to no, that's what I'm. That's what I meant with one form of TBI. There's a there's a kind yes. there's a kind of brain injury that can happen that essentially takes away the throttle on emotions. And I had a conversation with a man, particular man that I'm thinking of. This is a number of years back who had been doing contact sports for decades, and his partner just said, "Listen, this guy's a teddy bear. He's the nicest person to relate to, and then he gets a little bit upset, and he's just raging. There's nothing in between." Right. So for him, a lot of the work that we would typically be doing, which is much more about slowing yourself down, really sort of thinking, asking lots of questions, noticing your own emotional state, questioning your, your thought processes, a lot of stuff that we would regularly be doing, he wouldn't have been able to do. So our work with him was much more about early identification and getting himself away. That, mm -hmm. because, because he needed to like physically remove himself most people who do not have that as an organic thing, part of an injury like that, that's oftentimes what they think of as the right thing to do. But in many ways, it's such a basic thing. It's, it's important to be able to do, but we want people to be able to do much, much more than that because we want people to be able to stay engaged and stay engaged respectfully and productively, even when they start to get a little bit upset. But he couldn't. So we just had to be aware of that. I find that very interesting because in some ways, when I think about that, I think about somebody who gets angry and then all of a sudden they're hitting eight, nine, 10 on the scale of 10 and, and better for them to recognize it and get out of the room. I like what you're saying. You're saying we're not working to that. You know, maybe you do that now, but what we're working to is you stay in the room yeah. and you regulate yourself differently. That's, I think, what you're telling me, right? We don't typically think of this as primarily work. Um, related to managing rage or managing anger. And the reason for that is a lot of the people that come to us don't have problems with managing their anger in many areas of their life. They, in work settings, on the street, in lots of other social interactions, even when things get really frustrating, they manage themselves much better and they don't at home. So, so that's an indicator that it's not, the primary issue is not about anger management or impulse control or what have you. It's, it's more about 
our ideas about what men are supposed to be like and women are supposed to be like and relationships and home life, that kind of stuff. So we want people to use this, use skills that they have in other settings to sort of rework their thinking. That's something I might want to talk about a little bit later, but just sort of like a distinction between sort of like how people think about private life and public life. That is absolutely true. And that has come up on some of our other episodes where people at work know that won't, they can't get away with that. That's not going to work. They've got to work their way through whatever, whatever it is, whatever frustration or whatever's going on, because they could be sent home for keeps. And when you're home, you don't necessarily have that going on. You know, this is where I live. So you do what you do and I'm going to be here after it anyway. So it's, it is fascinating that you don't necessarily pull it everywhere else, but that maybe at home you allow yourself to. Right. So more about beliefs and understandings than about sort of capacity. Uh, Right. I like that. That's very well put. Tony, you work with people who sometimes perform acts that most of us would deem some of the worst things one person could do to another person. But no matter what, you know, there's still a person in there, a real human being with reasons within that abuser. Can you talk about that a little bit? When work got started with domestic violence work, it wasn't primarily in the beginning with any focus on working with abusive partners. Rightfully so, like the safety issues and and all the stuff, the concern primarily should should be on the survivor. And And the only reason we even came along programs like ours is because advocates were discovering just how hard it was to really how a resource and energy intensive it was to sort of Mm -hmm. accompany somebody into safety. And there was some talk about, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go further up the stream of causality? But then the other thing was that partners themselves, abuse partners themselves were asking for it. We're saying, you know, I don't want to leave the relationship. I want to stay, but I want it to be safer. And would it be possible to see if it'd be possible to get safer? So, you know, the early going of work with ours was not primarily started with an eye towards thinking of people who cause damage, particularly empathetically. It was mostly about like, what do we need to do to keep partners safe? That continues to be a central, a central concern, the central concern. And I will also say along the way, one of the things that's been really fascinating to see is it does appear that there are people who are very much intentionally about the business of inflicting harm and and dominance and control. And there's a very much smaller subset who are truly psychopathic that have no capacity to feel empathy. That's a different, that's a different animal than even than what I'm talking about. And there's also a whole spectrum of people who the impact of what they're doing is very is not that easy to distinguish from folks that sometimes that are doing it more intentionally. But if you get into it with them and try to figure out what it is that motivates them, you will discover that a lot of times they're acting out of motivations that are other than just simply the desire to create pain or to create fear or dominance. Mm -hmm. They're oftentimes acting out there in those situations. They're oftentimes acting out sometimes recent, sometimes old uh, wounds that have never been dealt with and that they've learned to manage in really unproductive ways. And so now what it ends up, the impact of what they're doing is that they're creating a lot of damage, but it's not who they would like to be at their core. I want to be really, really clear. I am not saying that everybody that acts abusively falls in this category. There are people 
who are very intentional about going about the hurt that they're creating. And frankly, our program is not that likely, a programs like ours are not that likely to have too much of an impact on, at least on the belief systems and the basic motivations. We might have some impact on their behavior, but on their motivations, we may not have a lot of impact. But then, but I'm talking about another group. Like I'm just saying that not everybody who acts harmfully is doing it with the same motivations. That leads me to ask, how on earth do you sort these these people out, these clients? Right. And and remember, I mean, have, I mean that must take a good amount of time and, yeah. and conversation testing, whatever you do to, to sort them into. Right. I mean, I, I guess that also makes me wonder, again, the layman's way to put it is how many how many groups, how many, I hate to say buckets because I, I yeah. don't mean it to be crass, yeah. but I mean, how many buckets can you sort people who come through your door? How right. many can you sort them? I mean, it may be unlimited or maybe it's, yeah. there's 20 or 10. Well, and remembering we started this conversation with the idea of the work being young, right? So I, I, I want to put this in an, as another example of something that we're going to be adapting and developing and learning much more about as time goes by. That doesn't mean that there aren't, haven't been attempts, some of which do seem fairly useful and so, at least in the ballpark of accurate <laughs> in, in terms of like thinking about people that act abusively. Every model is a, limited, uh, is a limitation on reality. So it never describes the full complexity of reality. But sometimes models can be really useful because they can, they can tell a truth that's an important thing for the work at hand. Mm -hmm. So like I could give you an example of one way that we think about common ways that people act abusively. And I am not presenting as definitive, but just might be useful in terms of like thinking through some stuff. That would be, uh, I said at the beginning that, that many of the people that we work with don't act badly outside the home, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that that's right. everybody. We get some people who do act badly outside the home that they're, that for one of better word uh, language, let's call sort of generally antisocial that they uh, are m much more likely to have engaged in what we talk about as criminal behavior outside the home, more common uh, that they would have more of uh, interactions with the legal system. That is the group that the, uh, at the far extreme, that the psycho, the true psych genuine psychopaths that have no capacity for empathy, they fit into this group. But then there's the others are more, an, a, a better way I think of thinking about them is not that they are genuinely not capable of feeling empathy, but that their life experiences and to a certain extent, their life choices, they have become trained or trained themselves to not pay attention to mm. that, that empathy thing that we're wanting. Right. And so, and yeah, so that, and that that's more general uh, in life. I do want to make the point that I might be sounding like this is folks that could never change. And that's actually not what I'm saying. There are people that come to us that would fit in this category who have exhibited quite a bit of significant changing, but it's often connected to changes in life circumstances, a change in stage of life or things important that are happening in life that are making it making them think about life in a different way and be willing to reevaluate and consider at least the possibility of trying to do something in a different way. So that'd be one group that generalized, generally antisocial. None of this language is perfect. Another group would be, let's call them 
jealous, suspicious, paranoid, right? That the majority of their harmful behavior is motivated by suspicion and jealousy. Mm -hmm. And that's a really particular kind of, like you see that little in little bits in other places, but there's a core of people that come to us, a certain number of people that come to us that they really do. Like, this is the thing that, that is the root of, of almost all of their abusive behavior. And there's a big spectrum, everything from, you know, like really not very fixed thinking, like almost like teeny bopper kind of romance. Like this is how we show love to each other. We, we monitor each other's text messages. That's because I love you. Um, and it's not really because there's really intense jealousy or suspicion there. It's mostly about poor modeling, either however they've observed it or whatever. And those folks are pretty easy to work with. You can it may be sometimes as simple as as asking them how's that going how's that working out for you right and mm -hmm. would you be willing to at least experiment with trying something different and then have them like do a certain period of time where they make themselves not do it and see what that does for their relationship and for those folks but i mean they but they think that that is exhibiting love love is what you're saying yeah it is, does that also fit into something you hear once in a while called love bombing? Have you heard that term? I don't know love that bombing. Term. No, that's a new one for me. That's a pretty new one for me. I don't think it's a new one in the world. But uh -huh. but love bombing would be just this over the top, you know, uh, mushy cards, and just saying all these wonderful things and giving somebody a kiss, practically bending their back over with this going with the wind kissed, uh -huh. uh, that type, like way too much, way too much to the point where anybody watching would say. I don't know how much of that is show and how much of that is real. Yeah. That yeah. sounds a little like what you're saying. But as you said, too, you ask them, how's it working? And you may come to find out it's not. Right. It's, it's not, not really working. Right. It, it, they maybe don't know why, but, th but they keep bringing it right. until maybe you or one of your counselors suggest to them that there are other ways to express it, maybe real ways and not these other ways yeah. that might work and, and actually get you where you want to go. But that is the that's the lower end of the jealousy spectrum, right? And the and the reality is I do I do want to make this point that the further sure. along you go on the sort of uh suspicion, almost paranoia spectrum, you get into some places that can be quite risky and not very reality based, and to the place point where people can have delusions. There can be sometimes people who are hearing auditory or uh, or visual, seeing visual things that they're that they're that are not actually reality based. The further along that spectrum you get, the more fixed the behavior is, the more sort of almost compulsive and the da more dangerous, right? Okay. So, so okay. when you think when you think about a lot of like homicide su suicide homicides, like murder suicides in mm -hmm. domestic violence situations, a lot of them sit in that area of the jealous suspicious. That's a pretty hard place to do treatment. And I think, again, this will be hopefully something that we're figuring out more of in the next decades. But right now, programs sometimes struggle a little bit with this. There's been some efforts to do work with DBT, and dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a kind of therapy that's sort of connected to compulsive stuff. But, but it's, the jury's still out in terms of whether or not that's very effective. We don't know. So that's two groups. And then the last one, I'm just making buckets here, but this last bucket that I think is, these are fairly all encompassing. There's, there's things within them. Are folks who you wouldn't really be able to tell looking at it from the outside that much is happening, 
Sometimes that's true for others as well, but that's because they're really working hard to keep it hidden. But this would be situations where even in casual conversations and things, there wouldn't be a lot of red flags. You would be relating to folks and you wouldn't, they wouldn't, a lot of the people that come to us that fit in this category, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them from anybody else that you hang out with, except for this one little thing. Within the confines of in intimacy and home life, they are too thin-skinned. Mm. The normal frustrations of relationships. And when I say that, I say that as somebody that's been in a relationship for a very long time. My wife and I have been together since the mid-90s. I don't think there's been a single week in all of those years that one or the other of us hasn't gotten royally annoyed at the other one about something, right? And I sort of suspect <laughs> that we will keep annoying each other, that that will be part of our relationship if we stay together, which I'm hoping that we do, <laughs> that that's actually not out of the norm. That's normal living together. It's hard to live with somebody, <laughs> right? Right. right. Uh, so, yeah. so what I'm talking about is people who, in that context, in the context of normal stuff that happens in relationships, are too reactive. And that's a pretty big bucket. That's a pretty big group of people. They don't necessarily intersect with the criminal justice system all the time. But in terms of creating damage in their families, they can create a lot of damage in their families still because of this. Maybe not in criminal ways, but in harmful ways. Um, yeah. Uh, that last group, may, this may be worth mentioning. There's probably the two biggest paths to getting into that last group <laughs> are kind of polar opposites. We see a lot of people who have pretty long histories of or pretty extensive experiences with significant trauma that they either themselves were targeted or they witnessed quite a bit of uh, pretty upsetting trauma. And that doesn't mean that everybody that's traumatized ends up acting abusively or getting abused. Lots of people find their way to hell. But if you want a way of thinking about how, an, how a person who experiences trauma might end up going this route, think about it this way. I'm small, scary, overwhelming, unpredictable, hurtful things are happening around me. But because I'm small, there's no way for me to get away from it. I can't leave. I'm not big enough. I'm not big enough to stop it. All I can do is remain. And that remaining is way past my capacity to endure. And that then is, is damaging. And it can sometimes be so damaging so far down in that there may not be conscious memory related to it. There may not be language related to it, a whole bunch of things. But it's down there as this sick old injury. Now mm -hmm. I'm big. Now I'm big. And now I'm in a normal relationship where, surprise, sometimes I feel hurt. But because of me, because of who I am in my background, sometimes anyway, that hurt can pluck a string, call up an echo of that sick, old, horrible feeling. And I'm not saying this necessarily happens at a conscious level, but the, for the purposes of what we're thinking about, basically the, the gist of it is my brain says, uh-uh, not now that I'm big crush mm. right that's right that's yeah now i'm going to turn the tables yeah i'm yeah. going to in a way get even for what happened to me when i was four or five years old whatever that, that is that could be it could be an actual like conscious or unconscious attempt to even the scales but it also mm. can be just a simple rejection of the horror of that old feeling like i have to stop this thing that's happening right now that i can that's right 
So that's right, the biggest right. group of these folks. But then the other group is actually the polar opposite. These are folks who, far from being traumatized, they never suffered. And in fact, nobody ever said no to them. And they got most everything they wanted. And I could tell you stories. Boy, could I tell you stories. And the thing that happens, like I have a very good friend who was raised like this. He got into his first relationship. And with all the expectations of having been the golden child for so long, and his first partner told him where he could shove all of that. <laughs> and, and listen, I got to know him so long after that relationship, but I have this very warm image of that woman because I think that's exactly what he needed to have happen to him <laughs> uh, to become a reasonable human being. But he was completely mm. unequipped and he didn't handle it well. He wasn't physically violent but he was mean and loud and whatever, and he ruined that relationship. And then he ended up blowing through a whole bunch of other relationships until he hit his like late 30s, early 40s alone, and suddenly was at the place, slowly got to a place where he was like willing to consider that maybe it's, maybe it's not them. <laughs> mm, mm, and that's then a great had, story. Then he had this hard, hard experience, uh, this hard, hard process in front of him of trying to learn later in life to have more of a better level of frustration tolerance. Well, I'd lo I love that. Yeah. Uh, that's great. The very traumatized and the very spoiled can actually look very similar for really different reasons. The very traumatized because, they, because they've had so many experiences where trying to do something productive didn't work. It just was smashed. And so they've kind of given up inside, whether they know it themselves or not. They just don't believe that it's possible to do anything co constructive. And so they don't even try. Whereas the very spoiled, they have, they're carrying this expectation that life will never be frustrating. It will always go the way that I want it. And so they end up looking very similar by really different routes. Yeah. I love how you have seen this, found this out, and the way you just served it up. I think that's really so insightful. And it's interesting when you're walking through that particular one, I can think of so many people like that. And I'm looking for myself even in that conversation, to tell you the truth. I, I didn't find myself on either side of that one, actually, because uh, I wouldn't say it was always great, but it was, wasn't was bad growing up. You know, it wasn't bad. But I wouldn't say I got my way out there in the world with friends I wanted to be friends or, you know, girls I wanted to have an interest in me, you know, so... I get a little bit of both in that. Yeah. So you can't help but listen to that and see yourself in that, sure. in that uh, tale. I think the thing that, that I think of as a parent, I think of the implications for parenting, right? That, mm -hmm. of course, if I'm thinking about trauma, that I'm wanting to be thinking about that you want to be with a child offering a certain level of stability, a certain level of predictability, of care, of them feeling cared about and seen and whatever support and love and whatever that that kind of stuff you want so that people don't have hopefully they can get through life through childhood without having too many things happening that are overwhelming to them that can cause damage in that way but the flip side of that is and the message of the very spoiled the experience of the very spoiled is that kids should not get everything that they want right it's good mm -hmm. to be generous mm -hmm. with right. kids but it's also if you think about any other kind of learning, all kinds of learning happen more easily when you're a child. It's always harder to learn something as an adult. And so if you can gift your children with the regular experience of having to manage a tolerable level of frustration, that will serve them well through life pretty much guaranteed. 
um, will really equip them for what, because life is hard. Life regularly serves up frustration. And so it's good to get kids little by little adjusted to that. If my child was here, he would be rolling his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be telling you all the things you didn't get right, I'm well, sure. He'd, right? Be, he'd be saying, oh, yeah, I see what you're doing there, right? Uh, ah, so you've been playing with my head since I was a little. Right. Yeah, one of the things we've talked about, about our kids growing up, we said, my wife and I would say this to each other, but we'd pick and choose what we called natural consequences. Yeah. So, so now and then you'd kind of let something play out. You know, you wouldn't let them reach up at the stove and pull the handle of boiling water and say, well, they need to know not to do that. But there are some things that you can see this might go a certain way and it, maybe you've told them be careful and they're not being careful and then it plays out. So like you say, they, they have to be exposed slowly but surely to the world the way it really is or they're going to be in there, they're going to go to college maybe and now they're really going to get it, you know, so that's not going to be pretty either. So, Tony, I have to ask you, how or should I ask, why did you get into this line of work? I got into this through my wife. I was working, I had worked in Latin America. We, that's where we met. Uh, we're both from here, but we were both working down in Central America. Came back, I was working with men coming out of prison. I knew that I was interested in working with men around issues of violence. My wife was a domestic violence advocate. She had done some sexual assault work earlier on in her life. When we moved back here to Philly, I'm from here, she shortly started working in domestic violence work. She was an advocate. She ended up then becoming an administrator in the program and was the director of their one program for a lot of years. So before I ever was doing this at all, um, that was one of the ways that I got exposed to it. And there was sort of twofold. One is, you know, even when your work involves issues of confidentiality, when you live with somebody, there's still lots of ways to tell stories and to share about your day and what have you. So I would hear a lot of stories and I would learn about, you know, like things like things that were really important, I think for me to learn, like the fact that we're here in Philadelphia, that here in Philly, the people that, that domestic violence agencies are worked with is huge numbers of people, huge number of people that they're doing with very limited resources. And sometimes the people are in really significant crisis. Another way I got exposed to it was that back in those days, the way they ran the hotline for the city was that volunteers and staff would take shifts. And it, if it was an off-hour shift, what would happen is it would get routed into what we now call your landline, mm -hmm. back before we had cell phones. And so it would be a very common experience for me to be in my own home, but have my wife talking to somebody up in another room who had just been pistol whipped or choked into unconsciousness or had shots fired into their home or or had the mm. or had an estranged co-parent who wasn't allowed to have contact with the kids show up at the school and take the kids without the teacher realizing what was going on and now the other partner is really scared and doesn't know what's going on mm. so all of that was really useful for me when I got involved with this because not because everybody that walks through the door is the worst of the worst. That's that's definitely not true. We get some really bad folks and we get uh, lots of people in between and there's lots of different variations. But it was just really useful for me to have in the back of my head anytime somebody walked through that there was at least the possibility that this might be somebody who in their life, in their personal life, might be quite a dangerous person to their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And that to be thinking about what the implications were for that uh, in terms of working with uh, so okay. that's how I got involved. You started by saying that you work with men coming out of prison. 
How did I you? Did. Yeah. I mean, uh -huh. What what led up to that idea? Yeah, that? Uh, that, that's a different story. I, I, I was not something that I particularly knew that I was interested in. And I got approached by somebody that I knew about a position that they were looking to fill. They knew that I was back in the country recently. And I sort of fell into that. And that's, I knew I wanted to work with men. So that was the attractive thing. And then it was really useful for me because I ended up spending a lot of time working with people who both were just recently out, but also who were still incarcerated and uh, ran a group for a while in a prison. Uh, I learned a lot from that experience. I could see where doing that, working with men coming out of prison was a very useful head start into what you're doing now. I will say this, that we as a program, uh, maybe it's because we're a little older. We're not the oldest program in the country. That's the, there's a program up in Boston that is uh, Emerge is a really great program, but they've been around for a, a little longer than we have and some other programs. But we are an old, one of the older programs in the country, and, and we do a lot of this kind of thing, like conversations about the work, but also coordinating with therapists and medical doctors and HR departments and faith communities in addition to the criminal justice system and the civil system, there are programs around the country that are primarily probation and parole exclusively or almost exclusively, but, but we get a big mix. We get folks that are through a criminal justice system, but also people that are coming to us other ways. I'll say one more thing about that, which is that the literature talks about the uh, mandated and the voluntary clients, but internally in our program, we don't really use that language so much. We talk about the folks that are mandated by systems and the people that are mandated by the conditions of their lives. And by that, I mean, very few people come to us because they just woke up one day, looked in the mirror and thought, I've been doing bad things. Today, I should get some help. Most people come to us because something is, has either happened already or is about to happen in their life that is really unpleasant. They're going to lose a relationship. They're going to lose access to their kids. They're going to lose their perceived status in their community, whatever that thing is, but it's enough to shake them and get them to come. The reason that that matters is that voluntary is kind of a, it gives a, the wrong impression. It gives the impression that the person just is choosing to do it on their own. When the reality is most people come to us feeling pushed. They feel they have to. They have to do this. Yeah. It's come to this. Would yeah. that be a fair way to say it? That it's come to this? Like, I, I mean, it's like I need help. Or like you say, sometimes it's mandatory. But Sometimes people come saying I need help. And sometimes people come in and they're communicating either with their words or with their, their body language. Who are you? And what is this? And I wouldn't be here if such and such hadn't blah, 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 blah. Okay. In other words, you can really, you can really come in with that. So, you know, part of the challenge and the interesting thing is to see whether a person can get from there to a better place. Yeah. The body language I picture is somebody sitting way back in a chair with their yes. arms crossed. Yes. Yes. The very beginning, this is least. bull, right? That's a really, really common thing. And one of the fascinating things is to watch body language as people are going through the process, because sometimes if you can do it right, I mean, every program does that differently, but there are, most of them are variations on a kind of a motivational interviewing theme. That's sort of how most programs start. We have a particular piece of yeah. ours, which is also around empathy assessment. We're interested to see to what extent a person can really experience an empathetic connection to what their partner has, has lived. And when it works, when it happens, it can be what, really interesting to watch people's bodies shift. Like some people will really get softer and their shoulders will slump and 
even in extreme situations, like almost go into a like something close anyway to a fetal position, you know, like, and it's a that's an unconscious way of showing that you're feeling vulnerable. Now, would you see that in an in an initial interview? Sometimes, do you think with sometimes. somebody, or is this yeah. something way yeah. down the road? Really? Okay, they, you can get there it, in, it a, in an hour, let's say. Yeah, you might, I mean, you might get it depends there. on what you're trying to do, and and not everybody will get there for sure, and some people will never get there. But it's, I, boy, it's fairly regular. You have to, there's some things you have to set up to make it work when it does work. And then it depends a lot on both how you do it, but also who this person is and what they want for their life. Because, you know, you can do the most artful work in the world. And if the person's not having it, then you're not likely to get the result that you want. I can see that. We get some people who will just straight out lie, even though, for example, they know that we're going to be in contact with their partner and, you know, other things. Uh, they'll just straight up just tell a whole bunch of untrue stuff. And then there's other people that will tell us things, but they're not saying it confessionally. They're kind of bragging about it. And the likelihood is that neither one of those groups is likely to act to get much better over time. There are exceptions. I had a young guy who came in and just told me a whole bunch of stuff in a way that was so believable that I half believed him. I was like, oh, maybe this is a bigger, you know, whatever than, than what really happened. But then he came back the next time and he brought back a questionnaire that I had asked him to fill out. And it was filled out with all these things he had done. And I was like, huh, let's talk about what happened there. And he said, oh, I went home to my girlfriend and she told me that I should tell you the truth, which, which <laughs> was so sweet and said something about their relationship, right? It said a lot about her but it also said some things about him, right? right? That even though he had not wanted to, that he was able to shift and willing. And then we ended up having very productive work after that. So, yeah. I love that. That's great. That's, uh, that's a great story. So a question I have to ask, you know, in my particular situation, my daughter was murdered almost 17 years ago by her ex-boyfriend. And he is, in, he is currently in prison. I have to look at what you're doing. I mean, I, I like all the things you're saying. It's so much more involved than my wildest imagination. The way you assess who comes through the door, how to manage them, you know, how, what to expect from them once you get a fix on what you think that's going on inside of them. But I have to ask myself the obvious question or ask you the obvious question. How would you rate your effectiveness? How, how do you measure and rate that type of thing? Yeah, no, that's a really important question. And and it's a and it's a question that has been kind sure. of wrestled with, uh, debated to some extent, uh, because there's been some conflicting results. So there was some early attempts to do studying uh, program impact. And it was primarily big surveys done at the national level. And troublingly, from a program's perspective, they couldn't find a program impact in those early studies. So that was an interesting thing to be getting back from researchers. But one of the interesting things that happens then, as is very common, I've learned over the years in academic and research circles, is that other researchers come along and they take a look at methodology of the initial of initial research, and that this is then becomes an ongoing process. But one of the fascinating things is that first round of research that found no program impact got critiqued quite a bit in terms of the methodology with which they went through it. And the, there were a number of critiques, but two of the primary ones were that they didn't distinguish for amount of time in a program. 
So if somebody had gone to one or two sessions, mm. they lumped them in with people who had gone through a whole big course of programming. And you can think about just oh, sort okay. of logically why that would matter, difference. right? Like if you're talking about program impact, but you're including people that barely had any contact with the program, it doesn't really give the program much time to do anything, <laughs> right? So that that was one. What a it seems like a very basic mistake. It does doesn't it? The, the other thing. Now I I just for a minute, I I, I was just thinking for a second uh, an analogy which is going to the gym. If I go to the gym once or twice, and somebody says, "Okay, let's right. see how you look before and after," they'd say, "I don't see any discernible difference." But if I went and did six months or a year or right. two years or whatever that is. Even if I went once a week, I, I guarantee you I would right. look better. Exactly. That's, that, that was the one big one. And then the other big one was, I thought this was a really interesting one when I first read about it, a failure to account for the accountability systems around a program. Um, and and that this one may just take a little bit of describe of sort of further explanation to make sense of it. So like the idea being, so you think about a place like Philly. Philly is huge urban center. It has a lot of wealth. It has a lot of poverty, but it is sort of overall all a much lower resourced city than, for example, like a city like New York. Um, that has implications for lots of things. Like, for example, in Philly, people, the systems that provide homeless shelters regularly run out of space. In New York, it's not even allowed by city statute for, the, for anyone to be turned away from a request for shelter. Um, and that is really reliant on the fact mm -hmm. that New York has such wealth in it that there's a much stronger tax base. So Philly is okay. not anything like that. It, this impacts all of the systems. Every system tends to be overloaded and underfunded, not because of any ill will or bad political planning or whatever. It's just a consequence of being a poorer city. So that affects things like probation. So a place like Philly probation uh, versus a place like Bucks County, which is a very wealthy county to the north of the city, where the resources per person are just dramatically different. So the, 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 what the researchers were saying was, if you don't account for those differences, like in terms of, like if I get probationer from the, especially back in the day, nowadays they've really, they really have ramped up the way they do supervision in Philly. But back in the day, you used to be able to get a probationer from Philly and you could tell if they had been in the system that they oftentimes would know how to work their way through the system. And that that impacted the way they came to the program because there was a lot less clarity that if they didn't do this well, that anything particular would happen to them. Whereas from Bucks County, they came in and you could feel it. They knew okay. that their probation officer's eyes were on them. And if they weren't, they didn't stay in line that they, whatever. So the researchers basically said, you have to account for all of that. You have to like find ways of measuring that too. And so when they did, what emerged was, and I think I said to this to you in our, I might've even used this very phrase in our conversation before, prepare to be underwhelmed. Like this is not exciting. But what they discovered was solidly replicable moderate impact, moderate. Moderate is this incredibly unsexy word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it does not sound impressive at all. But the reason that moderate impact <laughs> matters is that moderate impact is actually sort of the gold standard for work with adults in any area of work, whether it be behavioral health or substance abuse or mental health or whatever this thing is, when you're working with adults, it's hard to get dramatic change from adults who are already in established patterns. And so when you get moderate impact, that's actually usually considered pretty good. 
but it is admittedly moderate. And so what moderate means is a certain percentage of people are dramatically impacted, their life, lives are changed transformatively in the direction that you would want them to go. But that is not the majority, it's a group. And then there's a probably bigger group of people that may be a majority who are measurably impacted and in the way that you would want them to go, but not as far as you would want them to go. Good distinction. Then there's the last group that you just don't get or don't get anywhere near what you want. And that's moderate impact. So that's where we are as, a, as programs like mine. We're, we, are, we are solidly in the moderate impact camp. It does mean that I had, there's been enough people over the years that really I've had the sort of privilege, the honor to walk through the, with them while they're making significant changes that are improving their lives and the lives of their families, that it's been personally engaging to me. That's been important for me in my work. But there's another thing in terms of moderate impact that's really important. When you work with moderate impact results, you can plan for that in a way that accentuates the impact of what you do. So what I mean by that is, one of the things that we know from some other research is that programs like ours get used for abused partners and for accountability systems to gather information. Mm -hmm. So there are times where people come to our program do very poorly, but we are able to communicate that in a meaningful way that that's what's happening to their partner or the and or the accountability system in a way that helps them to make decisions. And sometimes those decisions are not decisions they would want to have to make, but they may be the right decision given the fact that the person is not changing. Mm -hmm. I think of a woman that I know that this was after 16 years of marriage and many other things that had, they had been involved with uh, in their in their relationship. This was the final the final step of being really sure that she had done everything that she could do. And it gave her this, a sense of peace. We were not the ones who did the thing. I mean, this was, she had been in this huge process, but she was so grateful with this very sad conversation that she and I had about the fact that he wasn't shifting at all. And that led to later with support from a system that was helping to support them and hold him accountable, that she was helped to be able to get away from that relationship. Hmm. And we thought of that as, on some level, a successful intervention. We did not get the guy to change, not at all. But it's a way of working within moderate impact. If things are going well, well, then that's great. And you still communicate that. But if they're going badly, well, you got to communicate that too, because that can be then useful for the people around the person. Mm -hmm. And that's how a program can be more impactful, even when they don't necessarily get at everybody that comes. Yeah, that's a good way to look at that. Well, let me ask you about this, because domestic violence agencies, they get a lot of airtime. The Violence Against Women Act, you hear about it every year. You know, it's up for a vote every year. So I wonder funding in your area where you're working directly with people who can be abusive partners and over here are people who are being abused. How does that funding, you know, wh what are we looking at? Are we looking at 10 to one? Are we looking 100 to one? What do, what do we have here? Well, one of, the early one of the early worries with programs like ours is that we would become a competition and we would take away resources. And for anybody that's ever worked in a world where funding is, a, is an issue, that's a very real concern, right? So one of the values in our line of work has been to try as much as possible to not compete with potential funding for survivor work. 
And so that has meant that our work looks very different. For example, one of the ways that it looks very different is, whereas because of the Violence Against Women's Act and other fundraising that survivor services do, the advocacy services do, that advocacy services are free, are not charged for at all. Whereas that's not the case in my area of work. People typically are paying. And there are places around the country where that is the only thing that supports a program. Like it's all fees. Philly is a hard place to do that because of what I mentioned, poverty. So you get a lot of people who really are struggling just to get basic money for public transportation. So how could you expect them to be able to pay a fee that's at the level that will cover the cost of services? So Mm -hmm. we work on a sliding scale. If people qualify for subsidy, there's certain... There's certain folks that fall within our subsidy guidelines, then we can lower fees quite low. But for people that are that have the means, they're paying pretty high. And by high, I mean $150 for an individual session and $75 for group. That's sort of our upper range. And then we get people that are paying $10 to $15 a session. And then a very few people that are not. We have for many years really wanted to be careful that we actually were certain or, or reasonably sure that we were doing something that was a net benefit. There's a lot of reasons mm-hmm. to, to question that. I could go, I, we could have a whole other podcast in which I could argue you out of doing an intervention <laughs> services with abusive partners because of all the things that could happen, which I think programs need to be constantly monitoring and thinking about and making program adjustments for so that they can account for them. But they are, they are real issues. But I think that we are now far enough in that we're pretty established now as partners. Like here in Philly, we work with advocacy programs really regularly. They know us and we know them and, we, and they refer to us but they do it in a particular way. They do it in a way that's not like go here and they'll, and they'll, they'll, or send your partner here and they'll get fixed. It's more like send them there and they will, they will figure out whether or not it's likely that they're going to change. Yeah. Right. See what you're really dealing with. Yes. And that, that's the role that we can play. But the, but now we're at a place where we really do know some things that would be better practice in terms of, increasing program length, making cost accessibility for people who don't have as much, um, some stuff around aftercare, support for partners. There's a whole bunch of things that we know we could be doing, but that the funding is so limited. Our options are so limited that it's hard to do some of the stuff. And we end up having to make sometimes decisions that are based on the fact that there's a limitation in the funding. So part of my job is that I actually, I'm interested now in trying to advocate for us thinking about how much currently not dealing with this is costing all these different systems. Because my strong belief is that we could be changing the way we prioritize funding such that we could be saving a bunch of money in our healthcare systems, in our criminal justice systems, in a whole bunch of different places, if we would put some more money in, into this, relatively much smaller amounts of money. But we're not there yet. So right now, it's still we're still much smaller. We, we are very much smaller than, than advocacy efforts. Think about it, Tony. I mean, you and I can feel insecure. You and I can feel jealous. I can get frustrated and I can get angry. There are all kinds of 
influences and triggers that could be escalated into something awful or dangerous, but we know when to stop. The difference between you and me and then the people that you see who become more and more violent or don't handle it well, what do you think is that difference? You know, one of the things that I didn't mention when I was starting the doing this work is what happened the very first time that I went and I observed a group. Um, uh, it was such an interesting experience for me. I was sitting on the outside of a circle of people. I didn't talk other than to say hi, introduce myself at the beginning, just watching. And I had this just the whole the whole time I was sitting there thinking, oh, shit. Like there's, this is stuff that I need to be thinking about myself in my own relationship. Oh, good. And, and, and I will say that, that I think that that's a lot of what has kept this fresh for me, Mm. uh, is that it's a way of keeping myself oriented in my own relationship about certain things. Another thing that I'd like to say about this is I think that sometimes we get, it's easy to get a little caught in how we talk about things the words we use sort of what those words uh, how what associations those words have for each of us that can sometimes be different when i started doing this work i was part of what was then called the batterers intervention services network of pennsylvania and we still to this day get referrals from one particular source that is for batterers intervention Even back then, 20 years ago, that did sort of feel like old school language, a little bit like the way that nowadays when we talk about advocacy or domestic violence work or whatever, we're not using the same language as the battered women's movement, which is what it originally was the original language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't hear that anymore. That's right. You don't hear it anymore. And it sounds old. But, But even beside the reason of it, feeling older, that there's a there's sort of a logistical thing that happens, which is how do you work with somebody who physical violence has not really been the damaging thing that they've done and use only the language of battering? And and so our experience has been that it's that's kind of a hard sell that you would talk about battering, but that there's a percentage of people that you're getting that have never even used physical violence once. They've been horrible in other ways, but that's not been their thing. So we've messed with that over the years and abuse and whatever, that's been part of the language that we use. There's another thing, which is there's a whole area of research around how words matter. It's, it's kind of old research. It goes back to the big state mental hospitals that used to exist before they were broken up in the early 80s. And they did some research and it was primarily people with schizophrenia. And this was one of the controls that they used was for some people, they would say, you're schizophrenic, you know, whatever. Um, and then for other people, they'd say, right now, you're, you're experiencing the effects of an illness. Um, that illness is called schizophrenia. We're going to be working with you around it so that you can hopefully feel be- much better. And just with that as the only difference, there were measurable differences in outcome. So we know that, that language communication, that matters. So internally to the program, for example, we usually don't call people abusers right to their face. We would say, these things that you've been doing, they're bad. They're really abusive. You need to stop doing them. But the, the abuse language sits in the adjective and not the noun, because the, the thing we're trying to communicate is this doesn't have to stay fixed forever. It's not your core identity immutable forever. 
And then the last thing I want to say about this is this question of when do things become so jargony and in-group that they actually get in the way? Mm. Part of why what the advocates have done, and it's been so important, is that they have sought vivid language to communicate the real seriousness and really long-lasting impacts that can sometimes happen as a result of abuse. And that is important. And I would never take away from a partner or an advocate or whoever if they want to talk about our people as batterers or abusers or whatever. But when I'm working with somebody, I'm mostly interested in what are they willing to look at? And so we have people that get so hung up on, is this abuse? Is this not abuse? Yes, I realize it's bad, but is it abuse? And I want to say that feels like a conversation that can quickly become unhelpful and just get too much in the way of me dealing with my stuff. And the sad thing is that if I take away or don't use that language so much, if I focus more on words like hurt and harm and whatever, then the sad truth is that I start to see more of myself there. Mm. It's the sad truth, but it may be the useful truth for me to recognize that what we're talking about are not necessarily fixed categories, we are talking about spectra. And that there are things that I do in my relationship that are damaging and that I need to be accountable for those things. I may not think of them as rising to the level of needing to be in this program that I run, but that doesn't mean that they don't hurt my partner. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that that's something that is worth looking at. And, and it also, it means that we're not talking about them and us. We're talking about something that is true on some level for all of us. Abuses of power permeate our lives. They happen between big people and little people, adults and kids. They happen between people of different skin colors and different economic classes. And they certainly happen between people of different genders and gender identities. And getting too wrapped up in whether or not it's abuse or not can sometimes take away from the fact that it actually is creating harm. And if I'm willing to think about that, then I might be implicated more than I'd like to recognize, but maybe it's important for me to recognize. Yeah, th that's that's brilliant. And, and I think really, like you say, separating the nouns from the adjectives, putting labels on people, as opposed to let's talk about what you're doing and the impact of what you're doing. You know, that's, that's a great way. And I can't help, like you have, you talked about the therapy group you witnessed. I can't help but sit and listen to you and look at my own life and how some things are served up that could be served up maybe a little more nicely, a little more healthily, if that's a word. Yeah. So I think as human beings, we actually are capable of holding all of the complexities or a lot of the complexities. Mm -hmm. We can be very aware of how dangerous someone can be very aware yes and still on some level recognize that there's humanity sometimes in that person um, that there's hurt in that person and damage that could be potentially healed but they also are dangerous right so we yes. need to be able to hold that kind of stuff and sometimes the way we talk about it can help us to hold more complexity and sometimes the way we talk about it discourages complexity so anyway, one thing that I can't help but think about is that roles for males and females continue to change. It isn't 30 years ago. It isn't 20 years ago. The laws continue to change. We're all reacting to those in different ways. There are different expectations about what it means to be a man, how to act, and it can be confusing. And people can act 
based upon neighborhoods they grew up in or places they worked. And for those reasons, it's impossible to find a final answer about why some people do what they do. I think that has to be understood to know where people are coming from in every kind of way and look at that and also then how they act. There's even in the the time that I've been here, you know, there's been really some fascinating things that have shifted. One of the things that's shifted and that has been fascinating for me is that uh, when I started, we would never, ever have put a gay man in a group with heterosexual men. Never. Okay. They was sort of understood that misogyny, like attitudes and hatred of women is very uh, connected to homophobia and that you just need to be very careful and that it wouldn't be safe. And that one of the things that's happened in the course of me being here is that our practice has changed and we weren't the ones who drove the change. It was our clients and especially the younger ones and who made it abundantly clear to us that it was a non-issue. They were like, what are you talking about? Why would we care? And that was not true when I started. So that's been really encouraging and has made me think, oh, you know, like if, if that kind of shift can happen so thoroughly and, and in a relatively short time, what other things really can shift? So I'm really encouraged that there are possibilities for shifting of understandings and ideas. And so I do think that there are shifts in the messaging that boys and girls get these days, such that some of the old boxes that we had are not true for everybody and are really understood and seen differently and lived differently. It's one of the reasons why our name, we changed it recently. For a lot of years, we were, our name was Menergy. People remembered it and whatever. Uh, but we, the reason that the name existed was that we wanted to be really clear that this was a place where a lot of men came and where men would feel comfortable coming because there were a lot of other men. And we wanted it to be identified that clearly. And in that way, it was fairly successful. But it started really getting in the way of another thing, which was that it had never been true that we saw only men. It had always been true that we saw some women and that in recent years, more and more, we're seeing people who don't fit a neat gender binary. And so then I kept having conversations with professionals and others where I would have to explain that it wasn't just men that came to the program and they would be shocked because of our name. So we decided to shift to a different name, Cordea, which has another meaning, but is less wrapped up in gender. However, I will still say that for all the shifting that we do, there do continue to be a lot of men and women who come to our program who really do seem to resonate in terms of their experiences and their understandings with some differences in terms of how we understand what roles are supposed to be for men and women. And that, has a, that can have quite a bit of impact on how they act as adults. I think that the research is still fairly clear. There's lots of variety, family to family and individual to individual in terms of how this plays out, but that at a societal level, it still is very true that, for example, when little boys fall down and cry, we tend to say, fuck up and you know, get up. But when little girls fall down and cry, we tend to pick them up and caress them and soothe them. Starts early. Right. And we do lots of other... Lots of other ways of reinforcing the ideas that men are supposed to be, that strong means not showing weakness and 
being sort of in control and caring for um, yourself and not relying on others. And women are supposed to be more sort of connecting and nurturing and whatever, that none of us have made it through adolescence without, if not at the very least, observing people who varied too much from the norm, uh, having consequences in the form of either teasing or bullying or whatever, such that the messages were really clear. Don't do that if you don't want to be a target like that. Mm -hmm. And we are, as human beings, we're smart. We observe those things. And we can learn from watching somebody else. So why would we be surprised if we train up men to sort of think of it as unmanly to feel weak or vulnerable or less than or whatever? And then they get into a relationship where, of course, sometimes you feel vulnerable and weak and less than. Why would we, should we be shocked when they react badly if we haven't, if we haven't set them up to be able to handle that better? There's nothing else I can add to that. That's, that's fabulous. And, and I'm, glad you, I'm glad you caught that here. We could fill up more episodes with all the things that we could talk about, not just this one episode. And I want to ask you, is there anything we might have missed in our discussion that you feel we should cover? I said real fast that one of the things that I like about our work with the advocacy organizations is that I think they really sort of know how to refer to us, uh, refer people to us that with, with pr appropriate expectations. But I, I sort of want to highlight that. That's who I want us to be. I want us to be the a place where if you refer somebody to us or programs like us, that, that the, the understanding is that this is not a guarantee that this person is going to change if they come. This is going to be, we're going to be seeing what happened and, and, but that we will learn things from whatever happens, but that that's the benefit. And we hope we cross our fingers that the thing that we want will happen, but we don't know. And that's sort of one thing I hope. Another thing I hope is that, uh, or not hope, but, you know, we're, we're a particular program in a particular context. People are having to figure stuff out all over the world. There are places where there are like certification things for a state and you have to be certified. Pennsylvania is not one of those, although that may happen at some time in the not too distant future. But one of the ways I, that I would really recommend if you, if you are actually interested in either participating yourself or referring somebody else, that, uh, that, the, that the way you figure out in your home area is you contact the local advocates and you say, is there a program locally that you trust? And if they trust a program, that's a pretty good recommendation. So that's a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wise. I do want to say this. If you're listening to this and you're thinking as we're talking, oh, there's some things about the ways that I'm handling myself uh, that are they're not okay. And I'm, I'm creating damage in my relationship, relationships. I, I want you to hear that you're not the only person that's ever found themselves in that situation and that there's that there are there are possibilities, there's options. That people really there's lots of evidence that people change at many stages of the life of life. It can take a lot of work, but it's possible. And I also want you to hear that considering taking a step and making moves towards that step, that that's that's a really courageous thing to do. And if you would get yourself to a place where you would consider doing that, you would have the beginnings of my respect. I would be sitting here thinking, this might be somebody that I could really admire, I could really respect, that's willing to look at themselves hard 
and take a step. So, you know, if you're finding yourself in that situation, we're here. There are other programs around the country. Really encourage you to think about taking that step today. Tony, if somebody wanted to contact Cordea, I w- how would they do that? We have a website, Cordea.org, um, C-O-U-R-D-E-A, C-O-U-R-D-E-A. That's D as in David. Our phone number is 215-242-2235, 215-242-2235. And we can also easily be reached at e- by email at office at Cordea.org. That'll just show up at our intake coordinator's and she's great. She'll reach out. Melinda is really a good person. We're here. We've never had a waiting list in the whole time that I've ever been here. That's one of the things about when you're doing work that most people going into it wouldn't really want to do the work. But then when they get into it, then they're like, oh yeah, this is something that I needed to have done a long time ago. It does mean that there's not people beating down the doors to get into it. The nice thing is that if somebody is courageous enough to take the step, they can get connected pretty quickly. Tony, look, Thank you for sharing your expertise in behavioral counseling with us. On this podcast, we've spent nearly all of our time speaking about those who are on the receiving end of abuse. And that could be those who were abused. That could be their parents, their friends, people they know, people they work with, live in the same neighborhood with, and they're all suffering because someone's on the receiving end of it. And a powerful way to stop the abuse is to start by understanding and helping those who commit these abusive acts. And that's what you and your counselors do at Cordea. So I I just can't thank you enough for doing this. And I can see in our conversation, I'm not surprised, that you represent real hope in dialing down the epidemic of domestic violence in our country. You know, because when you succeed, I feel that we all live more safely. And I just can't possibly thank you enough and giving up your time and giving us, giving us your expertise today and all this information. It's been just... Uh, you know, this is a, a really strong message you put out there today. Thank you so much, really. Bill, it's such a privilege to be on this podcast. It's really, this has been a really nice conversation. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the, the opportunity. I appreciate the chance to get to know you. You're yes. a really interesting man. And you're, the, what you've lived is, ah, as, a, as a parent, yes. uh, I, 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 I feel some of the hurt while knowing I can never plumb the depths of the hurt. But I'm so impressed at what you're doing with this thing that you've lived now uh, with your daughter and and what you're how many people you're helping this is really great i'm i feel privileged to be here this has been a real honor thank you i i appreciate your your thoughts in that area and i really do believe that that writing the book i wrote and doing this podcast has been great therapy for me i say that to a lot of people i feel like i've learned so much and i feel if i can be the conduit that uh, it can help people who are uh, who are on the receiving end of bad behavior and maybe also help some people not have happened to their family what happened to ours and yeah and it's just uh, you speak about honors it's an honor to speak with you today and and hear everything you have to say and i i can't wait to personally to go back and and listen to this podcast because i know i'll get more out of it the second and third time so thank you tony this is great tony lap thank you. you take care The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. 
I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.